This is the Jason Jones Show, powered by Mudhouse Media. Now, here's Jason Jones. Aloha, everybody, and welcome to the Jason Jones Show. I am your host, Jason Jones, broadcasting from the beautiful hill country of Texas. All right. I am sorry that I was missing in action for a while again. As many of you, most of you should know, you would know if you were on the team at the Vulnerable People Project, greatcampaign.org. Go donate. Follow what we do. You would know that I was in Washington, D.C., getting a lot of work done, but probably the most beautiful thing, what was that? Uh, months of work to keep alive, care for, and support a child and a grandmother separated from mom and dad when the bomb exploded at Abbey Gate. A firefight erupted, 170 Afghans dead, 13 Marines, or 12 Marines and one Navy corpsman, I believe, and countless wounded. A grandma and a baby were blown to the ground, and uh, crowds swelled, and it was just chaos, literally hell on earth. Marines getting in a firefight with ISIS and beginning to pull people into the airport, which included the mom and the dad, while grandma and baby were trampled and pushed away by the crowd. The gates were shut, and they would let no one leave, and this mother was screaming for her baby. They ended up putting her and her husband on a plane, and months later, she finds her way into a pregnancy center in Texas, distraught because her her mother-in-law, her, her sister-in-law, and her baby were freezing and hungry, in Afghanistan, and this pregnancy center found us. We delivered four months of food, cold, diapers, everything they needed. We helped this beautiful couple. They look like movie stars. We helped get them housing and a food allowance. Well, he found a job as a cook, and um, she was pregnant and getting everything she needed from the pregnancy center for her pregnancy. And, well, jumping through a lot of hoops, getting a, they were separated from baby when he was 11 months, less than 11 months, getting a two-year-old uh, to the United States from Afghanistan with no family member with a passport or a visa. As you can imagine, it was a great challenge. But thanks to our diplomatic liaison, Marilis Pinheiro, and her relentless work, a great caseworker at the State Department and a human rights lawyer, Becca Brown, this partnership got baby Jasor home, and I got to be there with him when he came to his new country and returned to his parents. It was beautiful. So that's one of the things we were doing in D.C. this week, and uh, it was a busy week, and so I apologize that we haven't had a show for a while, and we had another tragedy. There was a bomb that exploded at Abbey Gate. I'm sorry, there was a bomb that exploded at a, a school that we were getting ready to secure. Um, it was next in our list of schools to secure, and, and 22 uh, children, mostly young girls, were killed. Um, so we had to respond to that. We're making sure that all of the wounded students are getting all of the care that they need um, so yeah, it was, it was, it was an up and down week an up and down week. Um, and I'm getting ready to leave right after the show to go see my stepmother who is, um, at the end of very end of life. And I, I pray that I get to make it to be with her. I ask that you pray that happens so I can be there with her praying uh, her into the arms of our Lord, a lot of ups and downs. But before I left, I really wanted to get the show out because there was a controversy swirling around the new movie. Blonde, uh, based on the life of Marilyn Monroe, loosely, and it is definitely an empathy-generating film, to paraphrase uh, the great critic 
Roger Ebert. There's no one in the world that I wanted to talk to this film about more uh, with than Destiny Herndon De La Rosa of New Wave Feminists. Probably the only person I felt like I really wanted to talk to about this film. And I wanted to share that conversation with you because you probably don't want to watch it. You're probably going to watch it, but you don't want, I don't want you to think that I want you to watch it. Um, it's tough. Almost soft porn. Soft porn. It isn't almost. It is soft porn. Um, but it's called anti-abortion propaganda. I'm like, how did Brad Pitt and Netflix make an anti-abortion propaganda film? So I had to see it. And it is startling. And I wanted to talk to Destiny about it. And I wanted to share that conversation with you, our audience, my friends. So this episode is brought to you by the Vulnerable People Project. It is a big week for us. We are going to secure every girls' school in Afghanistan. We need your help. Go to thegreatcampaign.org. We just got a matching gift today for $10,000. Go to thegreatcampaign.org, and every gift up until $10,000 will match towards our paying for the surgeries needed for students wounded um, and also paying to secure schools. We have a big task ahead of us. We will secure every girl's school in Afghanistan. Afghanistan fell, but it's going to fall forward. VPP is there, and we are going to serve the women of Afghanistan and the minorities with your help. This episode is also being brought to you by the great Mike Lindell and his company, MyPillow.com. Go to MyPillow.com, use the code Jones, and get all his great products. You got to have the pillow. You got to have the mattress topper. You need the sheets. Go look around. Unbelievable selection. MyPillow.com and the code is Jones. If you want to stay free, you need to stay informed. Go to I read epoch.com, get the best newspaper in the world. Steve Bannon calls it the best one, uh, best one sheet in the country. Go to I read epoch.com, use the code Jason Jones, and you get uh, a subscription for the year, $77. First month's only a dollar. You like it? You keep it, $77 for the year. You don't like it? You cancel it. You got to peek around, but you're going to like it. You're going to like it. Oh, you're going to forget. In either way, you're going to pay the $77. You know that's how it goes. And then you're going to be glad you forgot. Because you're going to love it. All right? I read epoch.com. Use the code Jason Jones and get yourself that subscription. All right. Now, my interview with the feminist, the new wave feminist, Destiny Della Rosa on the biopic Blonde on Marilyn Monroe. It's the Jason Jones Show. Aloha, Destiny Herndon De La Rosa, my best friend of me in the world. Welcome to the Jason Jones in Show. In the world. In the world. You are Thank my you. best friend. Actually, you're my, I, I think you're just one of my best friends, but I know that, that to you, I'm just your friend of me. I just, there's no one that I love arguing with more. So whatever that makes you. My wife loves listening to us talk. And then I went, every time I get off the phone with you, she's like, why do you guys even talk to each other? What was that about right there? What was that all about? It's very stimulating. I mean, how boring would life be if you were just surrounded by people who agree with you all the time? You have to have the the people that nip at you and make you better at your point. Yeah, I agree 100%. So the reason you were on my show is I just watched Blonde on Netflix because I heard all the hoopla that it was anti-abortion propaganda. And actually that offended me not as a pro-lifer but as a filmmaker that when we try to tell a story – we're accused of propaganda. And so I thought, this is absurd. Brad Pitt and Netflix aren't making anti-abortion propaganda. I watched Blonde, and I really don't want to admit it, but I think the film is anti-abortion propaganda. 
What, what, what do yeah, you think? I would agree. And does, does that make you jealous that like somebody else is in your territory and, and doing it so well? Like it's not at all. anti-abortion propaganda, I think. No, I mean, first of all, when I say that, I think it's, it's anti-modernity. I think it is feminist. I think it is, which is contradiction, right? So it's anti-modernity, but feminist. I think it is a film that is animated by anger. The writer is, and director is angry, and abortion is centered at the heart of his anger, and he wasn't going to let it go. And um, I think the, the writer-director is extremely emp- empathetic and understands the pain that women feel. So when I call it propaganda, I mean it actually kind of in the truest sense. I, propaganda means like, you know, propagating truth. And that's not how we, we, we take the word today. We take it as, you know, brainwashing people or whatever. But I think it was a very honest film, even though obviously there's a lot of things in the film that are untrue, that are not factually accurate in the life of Marilyn Monroe, but in sort of portraying how, how it's anti-Hollywood. How about that? It's anti-modernity, anti-Hollywood, pro-women, anti-abortion, feminist. And I thought the only person I could talk to this film about and maybe have a conversation where they don't think I'm utterly nuts is Destiny Herndon De La Rosa. Now, you might think I'm nuts too, but I, I, I love the film. It moved me like the only other film that moved me in a way that was similar to this would be Precious. I think it's very similar to the film Precious, actually, on how the breakdown of the family and fatherlessness um, lead to like abuse of women. And uh, but I really more than give you my take on the film. I want to know what you thought when you watched this film. Yeah, I mean, I think I I definitely didn't expect what I saw. So I just thought this was going to be, you know, kind of obviously it's somebody whose life ended by them taking their own life. So I knew there was going to be struggles and exploitation. We know about, you know, the fact that before she kind of became famous, had nude photos taken that Hugh Hefner then purchased and put in the first issue of Playboy. So you already see these like really strong misogynistic components like in her life that are factual elements that we've seen before where she has just been profited off of and consumed by people and it ate away at her soul, right? And I think that the movie, at one point I was watching it with my daughter and by the way, I, I don't know that that was a good idea. Um, you know, you might want to get a disclaimer um, about that. Yeah. No, I yeah. mean, I, my wife watched it before me and so she had the remote control in her hand and she fast forwarded past the parts you would imagine <laughs> that she would fast forward. There, yeah, I, I, I had to do a lot of fast forwarding. There's a little bit of censoring. Like, it is very nudity heavy. I mean, because it is about the life of Marilyn Monroe, who decided to sex kitten, you know, for uh, most of her career. And so, but watching it with my daughter, you know, at one point, it's, she becomes drug addicted and everything else, posts this scene of an abortion that could have been fictional, could have happened, I don't know. But um, it's definitely what, as you said, the movie centers around. And my daughter just said, she's going crazy. And I thought it was really interesting because we hear that a lot, right? Women are crazy. They're hysterical, all these things. But when you really watch what this very tender soul person kind of went through, you would be crazy not to be crazy, you know, like not to have that affect you at a core level because she just wanted love. She wanted acceptance and people took advantage of that right and left and just left her this hollow shell kind of by well, the let's end. let's set it up for it, people. It, it can you wanna, do you want to set it up for people so kind of 
you know, why she was looking for love and how she was looking for love. And yeah, I mean, a, a big focus is that she was um, born to an unwed mother and never knew her father. And so always heard these stories about him being this great person, but didn't know his name. And so throughout it, they have these, you know, imaginary, well, not imaginary, real to her letters that are being delivered to her from this father who's going to reach out to her at some point. And she desperately wants that. Her mother um, was an institutionalized very young in her life. So she didn't have that kind of base. And at a very young age, you know, um, kind of broke into Hollywood, at, but then through, you know, basically a lot of these exploitative channels. And so she just wants somebody to fully accept her. And you, you do see that thread really strong in the movie that because she didn't have a stable home life, she's always kind of searching to that, which just makes her even more vulnerable. It's sort of the basics of filmmaking is every movie is one person or a group of people. Well, usually one person trying to do one thing. That's it. One person doing one thing. And so what was the one thing that Marilyn Monroe wanted Right. What was that? That one thing Norma Jean wanted. Right. Because Marilyn Monroe, there was no Marilyn Monroe. It was Norma Jean. Yeah. The one thing she wanted was a family. The one thing she wanted was a father. And the one thing she wanted was to be a mother. And, and they were kind of intimately interconnected. And um, and I thought that was just it was so powerful how that drove her. And so that's why I think I said to my wife as I was watching this, I go, this is a true movie, but it's. It's maybe not, it's, it's, it's not, well, it's true. It's true on how Hollywood brutalized women in those days. I think I told you when I watched those 50s movies, I want to join the National Organization of Women. Like I watch Ocean's Eleven with Frank Sinatra. I'm like, I want to burn my bra. I don't even own a bra, but I would <laughs> burn it because you're like, whoa, that's just crazy. And um, Hollywood brutalized and exploited very vulnerable women. And it showed how they took advantage of her financially, um, and that, by the way, that was all true and how she was treated as she said, oh, this is what I want to talk to you about. The powerful scene when um, she, uh, her husband, Joe DiMaggio, walks in after finding out she posed nude, smacks her. And there's no evidence that he ever hit her, but he hits her. And um, she's naked in the scene. And he says to her, you're better than that. I don't want you to do roles like this where they treat you like meat. You're not meat. And she says, I'm not meat. I'm better than that or something like that. But the actress in the film, for no reason whatsoever in that scene, is naked. Yeah. So here's Hollywood making us empathize for how Hollywood in the 50s exploited Marilyn Monroe. And then we hear, now we have Ana de Armas naked in a scene that's fictitious there's no reason she needs to be naked in this yeah. scene she could have easily had a top on for this yeah what what was that scene naked and, and, and by the way no actress that i can think of in a film that's not pornography has really been exploited in the way that that anna de armas was in this film about the exploitation of women by hollywood so it's really kind of bizarre it's you're entering this well, bizarre world I think also the fact that it's a scene where she's being physically assaulted, you know, by her husband. And there is something that, you know, when you start to get into the depths of kind of the current porn culture that we're in, um, Dr. Gail Dine speaks about this a lot, like the tying together of sexual arousal and then also 
violence and what it's doing to young people across, you know, the nation when it comes to, you know, we have porn culture, but this is what leads to rape culture, right? Is your body's naturally going to respond to seeing naked people. But then when you have these elements of just degradation and violence intertwined in it, that's no longer, you know, just saying this fictitious fantasy on your computer, a lot of times it gets acted out. And there is something about the degradation of women um, sexually, physically, emotionally, all of that. And, and I feel like this movie really put that out there, but you're exactly right. It reminded me of uh, the documentary, I think it was called Misrepresentation, where it was talking about all of the sexual images of women and how many, you know, young girls and young boys see uh, throughout, you know, a day in their life from the billboards, the magazines, all these things, just sexual images of women saying, this is your value, this is your worth, everything, you know, depends on how you look. And it gets into pornography and things like that in that film. And it shows so much pornography, so much. Oh, the Kennedy scene, the Kennedy scene was so demeaning. Well, it's just, it's these films end up, doing the very thing that they're claiming to kind of speak out against. So it's like, you can't really endorse it. No, I don't. It's like cuties in that way, right? It's like cuties in that way. Cuties was meant to criticize the exploitation of children in a film that exploited children in a way. It's just like, was it called cuties? Was yeah, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. The little girls who were dancers, but yeah, that was how misrepresentation was. It had all of these great facts and figures. That I was like, I would love for women to see this and study this on college campuses, but you'd basically be asking them to watch two hours of porn and sexual advertising in order to get those facts. And so it's like, it was the film, I, I don't know, the facts alone couldn't sell it. So they end up putting these things in. So that's definitely what Blonde did. I feel like there is so much nudity in it. Um, but then also the the graphic scene of her, you know, alleged abortion or fictitious abortion that was put into this film is just absolutely heart-wrenching. And I actually just recorded just that segment and put it on New Wave Feminist um, because I, I feel I'll like... I'll put that clip in the it. show notes. Yeah, I'll put that. I, I shared it when well, you posted it. I'll put it in the show I'm notes. Curious, I'm curious if you've ever seen a depiction of abortion that was that graphic because I feel like most of the films I see, you see the woman laying back. Maybe, you know, they focus on a single tear going down the side of her face you a lot of times don't hear the suction machine, which can be really triggering for a yeah. lot of women with abortion trauma. You don't see a lot of the stuff, you know, you, everybody in films is always so incredibly kind and empathetic. And are you sure you want to do this? And this is your choice and all that stuff that we know is not the reality for most women who have experienced abortions. But in this one, you know, they have the pandering, the nurse is like, it's going to be fine dear. But she starts in the car on the way there saying she's changed her mind and she doesn't want to do it. And the studio will the, not let her, will not yeah, like let it's her, scheduled. It's, it's, it's done. Because she's got to make then, this movie, I forget which movie it was. And then at the premiere, she, I, she stands up was, and she says, I killed my baby for this. Ho. Oh. Yeah. Gentlemen for blondes. And. She diamonds are a girl's best friend. It was diamonds. uh, Yeah, it was diamonds as a a girl's best friend. Yeah, Yeah. and then she gets this standing ovation. She's got tears falling down her cheeks, and she has to stand up and wave at everyone. And she says, "So this is, you know, so you killed your child for this, or whatever." Um, But in the scene with the actual abortion, she's telling the abortionist, "Like, I don't want to do this. I've changed my mind. I've changed my mind." And they put her into this thing called twilight sleep, which is fascinating because it's also what they used briefly in the 50s like for women who were giving birth to where they would just knock you completely unconscious and then you'd give birth and so she has the 
IV in her arm or they give her the shot, whatever. And then you see her kind of close her eyes for a second. Then she opens them and jumps off the table and knocks over all the instruments. And you think she really truly is running away. But then it turns into kind of a dream sequence where she's running through this burning house, which has relevance to the beginning of the movie. And she's finding this little baby in a dresser and pulling it out and just hugging it. And then the next scene is, you know, she's, the abortions happened. And it is just, I, I almost didn't want to share it on New Wave Feminist because I did think there are so many women who this is their story. And that is going to be an incredibly triggering. And I even put like a abortion trauma trigger warning on it. Um, because that's the thing. This might not be Marilyn Monroe's story. We can't confirm that. But I do think this is so many women's stories. I think this is Judy Garland's story. You know, like that's so exactly what my wife said. My wife said, I don't know if this is Marilyn Monroe's story, but she goes, This is Judy Garland's story. Yeah. yeah. And the crazy part is now the modern day, you know, Hollywood starlet, she knows she can't fight it. She knows that's part of the business and so instead you have the Michelle Williams who are actively embracing it and saying this was my choice and that's when we start exploiting ourselves because we know that we can't fight against it but then they're calling it feminism you know they're calling it liberation and it's just how can the same thing be two totally different things other than mental gymnastics that's all that's changed well you know I um I have a lot of friends in the entertainment industry as you know there's a lot I don't publicize that are well known and famous I'm close to and they have stories just like this, just like, just, 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 just like this, you know, from now, from today. And um, so in that way, it is very true. And I will say as a man, you know, I wasn't a Catholic till I was 30 and I didn't become a saint overnight. And you just, I say that this was our story. I, I could see this film being very triggering for women where it reminds them, you know, of dark points in their life. And I could see as a man you know, the character Cass, uh, um, Charlie Chaplin Jr., and he was just kind of a cad, and I was kind of a cad, and it's just sorrowful that he was just, he was kind of the, the worst character in the movie in a way. I mean, Kennedy, obviously a lot of this is speculation, um, but the Kennedy character is repulsive. Um, the, the casting agent that gives her her break, quote-unquote, is repulsive. But Cass, in a way, was was just kind of playful in her friend. And at the, at the very end of the film, you just realize Cass and Eddie Robinson Jr. Uh, were just really repulsive. And, and their kind of carefree, thoughtless childishness. Because the part that I do kind of believe is true, I, I went and researched what's true, what's not true. I mean, I have to believe there's rumors she had up to 18 abortions. My handyman said that he reads mob books. I was talking to him about the film today. He said, Jason, I've read every book on the mafia. Guess who's in every book? Um, and part of every mob boss's story is Marilyn Monroe. And this is before birth control, before contraception. It would, it, it's, you know, maybe she never got pregnant. Hard to believe. But Cass Chaplin early in her career... They had a relationship. They would share beds together. They would travel together. So who knows what's what. Um, and some people say they did have a romantic relationship. Others said they did. But that was a very weird portrayal because they, she was never alone with Cass. It was, he was always with Eddie Robinson Jr., right? And um, that was very weird. But it, it was almost as if it was her only 
and wholesome's not the word, but their relationship was one in which she seemed to delight. You know, she was a willing participant in their relationship. She was young and it was playful. And at the end of the day, he's the one that hurt her the most. Very sad. Yeah. Yeah, it was extremely sad because it's, I feel like this movie has I lost you for a second. I think you turn over. Say that one more time. You feel this movie what? Can can you hear me? Yeah. Okay. It has sexual abuse, physical abuse, emotional abuse, and then with that character, like psychological abuse. I mean, just, it is so disturbing. And yeah, I don't know. It was one of those where it's like afterwards, you're just left reeling. Like it, and, and I think they did a really good job also in the way the film's put together of kind of as she's getting worse with the addiction and things like that, taking these pills and just trying to numb herself because she was so sensitive and these things did destroy her like they would destroy anybody. Um, even the film becomes just kind of like foggy and weird and, um, you know, with hallucinations and kind of strange stuff like that. And it's just, I don't know. I feel like it gives you a sense of what it would be like to have this kind of like traumatized mind from all of these things. And I think people have always kind of thought of Marilyn Monroe, maybe because of the baby boy stuff and, you know, sexy babies, like a whole genre of like, you know, starlets and women that have been created by Hollywood, but that she's just naive and was this idiot. And, you know, they showed throughout the thing. It's like, she was talking about famous philosophers and reading books and all that. Like she wasn't stupid. She was sensitive. She like, knew her in, roles. In she, her... she loved the theater. She had depth. The, the sad scene where she was reading poetry to um, Joe DiMaggio and he's like, uh, that's not, that's it. <laughs> that's nice. Oh, that's nice. That's it. Yeah. You know, well, and, and that's the thing. They show her as like a very deep character, but she also just had this sensitivity that felt so human. And I think that, that is what so many women have almost had like beaten out of them by society, right? That if they have an abortion, if they've experienced, you know, sexual assault, whatever it is, like, okay, dust yourself up, get up and and move on with life. And in a lot of ways, that is society gaslighting women into not allowing them to actually feel the tremendous impact from these things that happen to, to them and, and that are part of their journey. And I felt like this showed what a woman who didn't allow those things to be kept out, you know, until she got to the point of addiction, like she just, she felt them so extremely. And so when you're watching it, you can't help but feel it extremely too. And think like, you know, she becomes suicidal at a point and she's being asked to play characters that are, you know, mentally ill and suicidal. And she's just for $500 a week, you know, for her studio contract money. And it's all just like slowly destroying her. It was, it was a very disturbing film. It was, I feel like beautifully done. It definitely don't watch it with your teenage daughters. Um, but it also was something that it was the way that they covered the abortion and the longing she had for her father. Like it was just so raw and intense. And I, I'm really surprised that it was ever produced. Right. Like, I'm shocked that it's on Netflix. Well, you know, all the Netflix comedy specials, one after the other, has abortion at the heart of it. Every Netflix comedy special 
has an abortion controversy. It's quite unbelievable, really. Um, Louis C.K.'s, Dave Chappelle's, one, the one guy's Netflix special got kicked off because it was so hardcore. Um, and the guy's like, look, I'm pro-choice. I'm just telling the truth about abortion. What? What do you want? It's horrible. It's horrible for women. You want me to, t- you want me to say that? Um, I, was, I was at uh, a, a Dave Chappelle show in Ohio during the uh, lockdowns. He was doing these shows, and I was there. Michelle Wolf did a skit, a bit, whatever you comics call it. She did a bit. And um, she said, I, I am pro-choice. She goes, look, I know it's killing a baby, but I'm so pro-choice that I think women should keep killing every baby. We should keep killing our babies, even though the thing we want most in this world is to be mothers. There is nothing we want more, nothing that our heart desires more, nothing we want more than to be mothers. But, but I'm so, I'm so pro-choice that I think we should keep killing our babies, uh, ladies, until we get equal pay. That was her joke. And everyone, the whole crowd was like, what, that was so morbid. You know, but this is Netflix special after Netflix special. If you honestly portray abortion, it's heartbreaking, period. End of story. And it says, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was going to say to circle back to the Netflix thing. I mean, I think that's why I really appreciate I know he's very much canceled, but Louis C.K.'s abortion joke, right, is it's either killing a baby or, and everybody's like, boo, whatever. And he's like, or taking a shit. And people were getting mad about it. And he's like, no, look, it's, it's one or the two. Like, it's either taking a shit, which people didn't like that he compared it to that. He's like, or it's killing a baby. And then he goes, I mean, it's okay. It's a little bit killing a baby, right? And then he goes on. He's like, oh, it's completely killing a baby. Right. And everybody's freaking out. And he's like, but I think women should have the right to kill babies. You know, they should be the ones who decide, you know, whose genes get carried on or whatever his joke was. But, and Dave Chappelle's too. Like, if. Yeah, remind can, me, what was Dave, I'm blanking can, at, what was his again? Do you remember? His was, if you can murder it, I can abandon, abandon it. it that's whatever, right. right. If we have like, women are allowed like, to, and, yeah, that's right. Well, and that's the crazy thing. There were actually some feminists in, it was like Sweden or something, probably seven, eight years ago, who actually came to that same conclusion. Margaret Sanger's so, son so, wrote an essay in the late 90s saying that we need to get men on board, that they should have the right to abandon a child. That that is the logical conclusion. Like, if a woman has a choice whether to continue the pregnancy or not, then the man should also have the choice whether to participate in this new life. And so, that that is kind of the logical conclusion which Dave Chappelle came to as again a joke. But I'm like, this is already happening in, I believe it's Sweden. Like there was a group of feminists pushing for the rights of deadbeat dads to sever, you know, all responsibility. So it's just not that far off. So. Watching this film made me realize how important, not that I'm a feminist, but your organization is, because I thought this is really a feminist movie. I mean, it, no, it's so confused because it's very exploitative of women. The, the lead actress is just taken advantage of explicitly in all the ways Marilyn Monroe was implicitly. Does, is that, does that make sense? Like literally everything they say Marilyn did, she had to do on stage. She had to do on screen. So everything like Marilyn did, we don't, did she do this? Did she not do this? This actress had to portray these scenes naked before a camera. So there's that. But, but it really indicts Hollywood and shows how abusive our culture was to women. And so, I mean, I'm a conservative, but I always laugh when you'll con- there was never a good old days, guys. Like, how far back are you going to go to find good old days? It doesn't get good until the Garden of Eden. 
right? I mean, in the 50s, this is how women were treated in Hollywood. And we had segregation. And you could punch your wife in the face and the police were going to show up and not arrest you. Like, this is real. And the reaction to this was feminism, which I think is, is a distortion and a perversion and damaging. You don't. But that's what, we, but that's what we're frenemies. But don't you think this film would be, it's abortion has destroyed. It has literally just blown up the feminist movement's ability to do anything good because they have to discount yeah. everything that's, that's powerful about and true about this film because it presents abortion as devastating to a woman when we have to imagine maybe once a woman experienced abortion tragically, maybe once a woman was coerced into abortion by a man, maybe once, maybe just once that happened, but we act as they, they act as if every abortion's a bat mitzvah, and it's always a woman's uncoerced choice, and they will never allow us to look at the issue any other way. And they erase so many women, so many women's stories and lived experiences, and I think that's the frustrating thing: is those women who desperately need to share this pain and this agony they've had because. You know, I've said before, we talk about, I don't want to be chained to the stove barefoot and pregnant, but we don't think about the emotional bondage so many women are stuck in from their abortions. And they just, they need oxygen on this festering wound. They need to be able to talk about it and share it with someone. And when they see this type of reaction to, a, you know, partly fictitious film and how people are responding when this woman didn't want to have an abortion and regretted it and had trauma from it, like, they get that message loud and they're like, you're not a safe person for me to share this, this pain that has me trapped and, and in bondage, like emotionally, I, I can't share that with you. And so I think it ends up doing a lot of damage. The fact that so many radical feminists um, have moved to such a pro-abortion extreme that they are fine sacrificing these women's lived experiences and, and gaslighting them and erasing it and saying that they don't exist. And it's just, that's, that's not feminism. If I can acknowledge that there are women who claim that they have zero regrets and that their abortion decision was the best decision they ever made, you know, okay. I mean, but I'm asking them to also understand that there are so many women who have been chewed up and spit out and exploited and abused and everything else with abortion as well. And they just, they cannot allow that to be true because I think below the surface of so many of these women, it is their own abortion story. And if they acknowledge that this woman felt that way, then that little part of them that maybe has, maybe not even regrets, but some nuanced feelings, some difficult emotions surrounding it, they have to keep it so trapped inside because the potential, it is this emotional atomic bomb if they really allowed themselves to feel it deeply, like, that's what could happen. And so they have to absolutely pretend like this doesn't exist. It's a religious stigma. It's a societal stigma. But I would argue it's a biological stigma. There is something in our bodies that knows our wounds should be the safest place in the world for our child. And when we, you know, go against that, our bodies, you know, hold that. And that's, you hear feminists all the time talking about trauma and how our bodies hold trauma and cortisol levels and all of these other things, right? But yet they don't expect women to have one when it comes to abortion like that. That just scientifically and biologically doesn't make sense to me. It blows my mind and it does such a disservice to their fellow feminists. 
Yeah, I mean, and, and Joyce Carol Oates, who wrote the, the book that this film is based on, isn't she adored by feminists? I thought she was adored by feminists. She is. I need to read the book because yeah. you have Andrew Dominic, who's the writer-director. And I have a, like, I have kind of a strange theory. So this guy is clearly a brilliant director. I, I, I don't know what else he did. I was looking at it. I didn't see any of his other films. But Roger Ebert called films empathy-generating machines. And no other film has generated empathy in me like this. Maybe Precious. Precious is the only other film. And I compare it to Precious, which you're thinking, have you seen Precious? So yeah, I don't know if did, I, did I ask you that earlier? Maybe I asked you. So it reminds me very much of Precious and um, in the way that it's just devastating and it generates empathy. So then I have to ask myself, you have a director with so much empathy for Marilyn Monroe, but then he's running his actress through the same paces that the film kind of critiques how Hollywood treated Norma Jean. Hmm. And I thought, is he Cass? Is the writer-director Cass? Is he a guy that uses his empathy to hurt women? Like, what if, what if he's just the worst misogynist ever? He's like, I'm going to hurt millions of women. This film is because, like you said, it is going to be very triggering. That no abortion. You're looking at a 4D ultrasound before, and, and you're literally looking at the cleanest, clearest image of a child in the womb that you have ever seen on TV ever. And she's she's talking to the baby throughout the pregnancy, and the baby yeah. responds back to her at some point in a subsequent pregnancy. Like it humanizes the child in the womb more than any film I've ever seen. Yeah, so you're like, what is going on here? You've got this actress doing the worst things, and I talk a lot with my business partners and actors about what would you do as a writer director? What would you have an actress do? Would you do a scene? I mean, and there's just no way I would ever produce a film where an actress had to do you know any of the nude scenes the kennedy scene which is really one of the most vulnerable scenes in in cinema history i mean it's you know it's the vulnerability in which this actress is and i mean it makes you empathize and the scene with the casting director it's it's very it's very powerful it's like you're you're there when she's being raped and Kennedy effectively rapes her. It's very sad. She imagines she has one type of relationship with Kennedy, and she realizes quickly it's another. Um, I think I have to read the book. I want to see how much the book differs from the film. I mean, because I, that's going to tell you a lot about the director's motivation. But she, it's just strange that you would have a, a writer-director empathize so much with Marilyn Monroe's pain for having to be quote-unquote meat and then treating his actor like meat. It's strange. Uncanny. Yeah. Well, and the response that I'm seeing from a ton of feminist pages is people basically talking about, you know, pro-life propaganda. And then so many women saying, oh, I'm so glad. Like, I won't watch it. I refuse to watch it because of this. Like, the very women who probably, like, again, are keeping maybe abortion experiences at bay and in a small little box, like, they're the ones who aren't even going near this film because of that. And so I don't know, cause I don't, I don't know what the final outcome is from this movie. I definitely, I picked up on what you were saying. Like there were just, there were scenes where there was no reason that she had to be nude and yet she was. And, you know, like I said, violence happening for her and things like that. And it just wasn't even necessary for the story. So 
I think that that's, um, that's a fascinating way to look at it, though, that, yeah, you're condemning what Hollywood did to, to Norma Jean, and yet you're doing it to your own actress. And wouldn't it be great to have feminists having that conversation that we're having? You know, the film is so, it's so confused and that it's a critique of Hollywood's abuse of women and really abusing. But I th- again, I will feminists, they can't condemn pornography. So they really, I guess, can have no problem with the roles that Marilyn Monroe was given and the role that this actress was given. They can't, no man, when is a man... Reverse the Kennedy scene. Put a man in that place and shoot that scene. Would that ever happen? No. How, no. Do, how do I and, explain and I that think, to the audience? I can't. There's just no way to explain it. I think, I think you're exactly right. There's so many kind of tenets of modern feminism that they have just painted themselves into such a corner that they can't condemn anything because they have become the new mouthpiece for patriarchy. Like, it's not even just you know, certainly not smashing it, but, and, and not even just kind of placating it. Now they're actually like the Andrea Dworkin type feminist that I am from, you know, her writings on pornography and these things in the seventies and the exploitation. And she is someone who experienced all those abuses and is coming at it from a very raw place when she talks about it. And she was rebuffed by a lot of feminists of that time because they were like, I, I really think it is a psychological thing they're doing where it's like the patriarchy, this is so huge, we can't change it. And so rather than asking for half, we're going to ask for a piece. And then we're not going to get the piece, so we're just going to take the crumbs and we're going to call that victory, right? Like you see this happen with abortion, with pornography, with even hormonal birth control. Like, I, I'm sorry, but where are the nervous demanding like male birth control since y'all are the ones fertile 24-7-365 for like decades more than we are. But no, we're the ones who are going to be demanding these things that actively hurt us constantly. And it's, Could you imagine it's the Puerto like, Rico studies uh, where they killed all those Puerto Rican women, killing yeah, a bunch yeah. of Puerto Rican men? I mean... No, men got like sore testicles and a couple had, you know, suicidal thoughts and they immediately canned like, the, the male birth control studies. And so it's... No, women dropping dead all over Puerto Rico just trudge on it's only allowed to happen because it's women and they they were nurses they were required to be a part of those like panels those trials in order to get their nursing degrees like it's crazy what happened in order to make birth control happen guess who was a huge proponent of that Hugh freaking Hefner like full circle why is this disgusting vile man who should be the epitome of the faith of like patriarchal thinking why is he pushing for abortion and birth control and all these other things if it's not so that he can continue creating this culture? Wait a second, but he put cute women. bunny ears on 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 eighteen year old girls. Are you saying he's the patriarchy? He he, I mean, he hired he hired eighteen year old girls and put bunny tails and bunny ears on them. That's that's feminism, isn't I mean, it? And I'm sure he was paying them the full you know minimum wage and they got tips. I bet, no, I bet they got more than I bet they got paid. You know, like oh, twice I they got a lot age. more than that. And some of it was probably super horrifying and traumatic. I just, yeah, I mean, and this is the man that then goes off years later. And he never met Marilyn Monroe, by the way. So he takes her photos after she becomes famous, buys them for like $500. 
publishes them in the first episode of or the first uh, issue of Playboy, and then he buys a burial plot next to her so that they can be bedmates forever. Like, just talk about the. I did not know that. Is that so? He is literally buried next to Marilyn Monroe. He he is some celebrity plot, and that one of the plots near her came available and so he bought it and publicized that they could be bedmates in the afterlife like i hope on judgment day and on the resurrection joe dimaggio steps up and kicks his ass right there on judgment day in front of everyone i just i mean i don't even know if i believe in hell and i certainly would never wish anyone goes there but i hope wherever he's existing has no air conditioning and is the same temperature as texas i hope (laughs) i love texas for him he is a vile human being and the fact that people champion him as this like wonderful feminist like what type of crazy upside down opposite day world am i living in no it's very sad and it's very sad for me and i published an article today it probably made you mad i sent it to you i don't know if you read it but i was criticizing western feminists because i'm like listen there is a war on women and you're utterly silent on it a school girl girl's school just got blown up in afghanistan and the media in the west is not reporting on it Today, I spent my entire day getting money to a hospital in Afghanistan so we can pay for these surgeries for girls whose schools were blown up. And I'm like, where's the Red Cross? Where's the Red Crescent? Where are feminists? What's going on? Why is my little organization securing girls' schools and building women's medical clinics? And it's like the endless licking. That what well, You're too young to remember. There was a commercial for the Tootsie Roll Pop. Did you ever see that? How many licks yeah, to the yeah, Tootsie not- Roll and then he cracked. Like how many licks to we're past our problems where we can think about women having real problems like being shot in the face for not wearing a burqa or having their schools blown up because they want to learn how to read and write Dari poetry. And uh, it, or, it is- I mean, that's, that's the crazy thing, right? Like how many um, globally, when we're looking at the persecution of LGBTQ uh, people and queer individuals and everything else that's happening, and then you have, women over here, feminists over here who are putting on their handmaid's tale outfits and, you know, protesting pregnancy resource centers. And I'm like, literally what is in the handmaid's tale is happening right now in Iran, is happening in Afghanistan. Like these things are happening and you are so American centered that you don't even see that. I will say to their credit, at least a lot of the feminist accounts I follow, like they are talking a lot about what's happening in Iran right now. There's not a lot of practical things that they're pushing for. It's more like tweet your congressman and use this hashtag and stuff like that. And so I think a lot of them don't necessarily. Yeah, there's one, yeah, but they're they're silent on it. Afghanistan. So I'm happy they're they're talking about Iran today. You know, when my movie The Stoning of Soraya M came out, my movie I was an associate producer on The Stoning of Soraya M, but I liaise with the Iranian community. I liaise with organizations to promote the film. And the West, uh, the Iranian feminist groups told me not even to waste my time with Western feminist groups. And I didn't believe them. And I met with uh, feminist leaders. And a, a one lady said to me straight, looked me in the face and said, we don't promote film. We, we don't talk about issues like this because it will trivialize to our audience our problems. And there was a, there was a gay guy on the marketing team of the Stoning of Sri M. And um, at least I... I'm, I'm, I'm taking a leap. He, he seemed gay to me. I hope I don't sound prejudiced, but I, I'm guessing he was. And there were two gay guys about to be stoned in Iran. And our film came out the day of the big gay pride parade in San Francisco. And I said, listen, I want to make flyers for our movie, buy out all the screens and uh, invite people from the parade there. And he's like, you know, he, he, he shut the whole idea down. Here I am, a conservative Catholic. 
and um, and I want to buy out these theaters. And do you know, and I told you this before, we were the ones that rescued, quote unquote, I don't believe in the, the alphabet soup stuff. I believe that we all have attractions and we have to rein them in because we don't want to sin. But I recognize we all have different attractions and it is what it is. But the LGBTQ activists in Afghanistan, believe it or not, they were there in Kabul working for Western groups, were utterly abandoned by their aid organizations they worked for, given letters that basically said, um, yeah, you don't work for us anymore. We're not liable for what's about to happen to you. And guess who got them out of Afghanistan? VPP, our organization. And I just don't know why it can't be both and. We can fight in America on the issues that we disagree on with on the marriage and this and that and uh, whatever we're fighting about, which seems to me to become increasingly more bizarre every day, uh, you know, having transgender people reading to Storybook Hour. I think you went to one of those. We can fight that here, but maybe we can agree that in Iran we're going to make sure that walls aren't being pushed on dudes and girls aren't being shot in the face. Maybe we can work together there, but it's as if, no, not. We're not even going to talk about that, and we can't even have any points of commonality anywhere because we're enemies, and it's just quite frustrating. Yeah, we definitely disagree on some of the stuff there, but I'm with you. Just you can disagree with me. People, people, gay people being hung for their sexuality, which I don't think is a sin. I think that's how they are, like, that is something that I do not understand why people capable of that empathy because maybe either they love somebody who's, who's gay or they are gay themselves or you're just a decent human being and say nobody should be killed for this reason. Like yeah. it, it blows my mind. Yeah. That, oh, well that, that makes our very privileged kind of issues seem too small. So we're not going to work towards that. I just, I don't get it. I don't get it. It's, the world feels crazy. It's a disconnection from just our shared global humanity. And when we have more of a connection than we have ever had in history, right? Like we know what's happening in Uganda. We know what's happening with the Uyghurs. We know what's happening, you know, in Iran, like all of these stories, like we see the faces of the people. We see videos of them from a week ago before they were shot in the face and killed. Like these horrifying things that that should make us care more and it should give us the, the empathy and perhaps perspective, which I think would be great for us to have more of that. But I don't know. Yeah. People are trying to stick to their silos and it's just, it's a very privileged existence here in America when you can compare resource centers, which here's the thing. I don't co-sign everything resource centers do when it comes to, you know, intake or maybe trying to convince people to consider abortion providers. I don't, I don't approve of any of that. At the same time, many of them are saving their counties millions of dollars through offering resources, you know, the cribs, car seats, diaper wipes, things like that, to many of the migrant women that I serve down on the border. Like, they go to these resource centers here. This is a good. This is an overall good. And can they step it up and can we say, hey, we need you to change these certain things? Like, absolutely, community should do that. But instead, we're acting like pregnancy resource centers are the handmaid's tale. Like, it's just completely no. bonkers and so out of whack. Did you see the story? I don't know if I, I sent I sent it to you. I don't know if you had time to watch it about the young boy that we were able to reunite with his mom thanks to a pregnancy resource center. Yes, that little baby running up to his mom at the airport. That yeah. One. yeah, let me tell you the story, even uh. if you know it, just for the audience. Guys, so check this out. December 23rd, I get a text from 
uh, a pregnancy center in Austin, Texas. They actually thought I still lived in Hawaii. They had an Afghan young woman and her husband that were just left out of a refugee camp here in the States because her pregnancy was so bad and she was so sick. They're like, we can't help you. Go figure it out. Yay, government. And they called uh, a helpline, pro-love helpline. I forget the name of the line, but it's from Pro-Life Ministries. That line led them to a pregnancy center. That pregnancy center called around saying, um, this Afghan family needs help. Their two-year-old, their one-year-old at the time, less than one, their, their, their child was separated from them with the grandma when the bomb exploded at Abbey Gate, and there was a firefight that broke out between the Marines and ISIS, and they pulled a lot of the people into the airport, and, those that, and then, then they closed the gates, and they were separated from grandma and baby in the chaos, 170 dead, countless wounded, 13 Marines were killed, and um, quite a tragedy. The grandma and the baby were freezing and literally starving to death. Who can help? Well, Texas Alliance for Life knew of me. They said, call this number. It's Jason Jones. He can help. I was 40 minutes away. I said, I'm coming down. We met at a coffee shop. My organization was able to deliver food, cold, diapers, baby formula uh, to this grandma and baby and the auntie uh, within hours. And we also... And did the mom did the mom know that the baby and grandmother survived? Yeah, so what happened was they did. They could see them, and they were, she was screaming. It's like a movie. I won't, let me out. Let me out. I would rather stay in Afghanistan and be with my baby. Let me out. And they said, we can't let you out. It's, it's, like, it's like Sophie's Choice. It's like you can't even imagine. It's, it's like boy in the striped pajamas, and there's a fence between you and your grandma and your, you and your mother-in-law and your baby. And there's you and your – so it was, the, it was actually the husband, uh, the husband's brother, the mom – then, on, then the baby and grandma were separated from them. The bomb explodes. People are thrown back, shrapnel everywhere. People, I have video of it from my teams on the ground that were actually there. People lying, screaming, you know, skulls, caps missing, uh, Marines and ISIS in a firefight, just hell on earth. And, but, but my organization, VPP, thanks to our generous donor, who, by the way, a donor came to, uh, through for me right before this call, we need to pay for two emergency surgeries. We don't have any money in the bank ever. It's like just constantly in, out, in, out. This explosion happened just right now before we started the podcast. Thanks to one of our beautiful donors. Uh, we got a matching gift, and we're going to be able to pay for these surgeries tomorrow and save two lives. Um, but, uh, yeah, this pregnancy center, they were aggressive in finding resources, and they found us, and we were able to not only – save the baby's life and grandma's life and the auntie's life in Afghanistan, give them four months of food, coal, and diapers. We work with the U.S. State Department. We advocated for them. We got them to the United States and reunited this week. I'll put the, the news story and the video in the show notes so you guys can see it. I was in EWTN News Nightly. Um, Fox producers are talking about doing a special about the whole thing. But this is all really the story of a, a local crisis pregnancy center that was there to meet the, the needs of this migrant. And... Um, Imagine if you raced that pregnancy center from the planet Earth, there would be a dead grandma, a dead aunt, a dead baby, and a mom who was depressed and suicidal, maybe dead herself. And um, so these pregnancy centers do things that are just way beyond our imagination. Um, and, you know, they're usually small. They're hometown, homegrown, nitty-gritty. Uh, they're not Starbucks, you know. They're um, they're like your local bookshop, you know. There's... There's uh, grandmas well, and, and aunties, and uh, they're beautiful. They're the best. That's the point that people need to understand. It's not a monolith because I think the pro-abortion side constantly wants to say, okay, this 
crazy one over here. This is what they all are. No, they're not. It's not like Planned Parenthood with their, you know, streamlined abortion quotas for every facility. You know, they don't have that type of thing. A lot of them are church run, you know, volunteer based, donation based, like small places. And so making sure that they're doing things ethically and have the funds to be able to do these things and offer these services, like that's where the focus should be, not just wiping them off the face of the earth, because you're exactly right. Like so many of the migrant moms that I know, like these are places that they go for just the basic supplies that they need to raise their children and support their families. Like they're vitally important and they get such a bad rap because, you know, right now there, there's a huge campaign with Elizabeth Warren and a lot of people on the left to just shut them down. And they don't even know what they do. No. They don't even realize how much they're actually serving local communities. And they're women they're run. The These story. are women. Oh, you know, I was on the board of a pregnancy I, center in Hawaii for 25 years. I moved here. I just got off the board. When I got on the board, they wanted a man. It was like in the middle 90s. And they wanted a young person. And when I left the board, I was the only man and the youngest person. There were, as we say in Hawaii, tutus, aunties, Hawaiians, Filipina, uh, Chinese. It was the culture of Hawaii. It was grandmas. It was, um, you know, papas and grandmas and, and tutus. And this is who runs it. And you come in there and they're like, dear, what do you need? And then these tutus call every banker, every everyone they know. What problems do you have? And they just start calling people to solve problems. Yeah, you're gonna, not going to walk in there and see, you know, um, it's Kaiser Permanente. Okay, these are not Kaiser Permanente, right? right? It's, not, it's not what it is. So they are easy targets, right? If you want to go make a bunch of grandmas and aunties look silly, I mean, I guess that's not going to be very hard because they're homey, down-to-earth, problem-solving, wonderful women. Now, some of them, as you know, nowadays – they become very professional. They're like medical clinics. They are very sophisticated, very professional. I don't, I'm not even saying these ones are even better. That's just what they are. I think some of the ones, like the one I was on, we're going to solve any problem you have. How are we going to do it? I don't know. We're going to call the Knights of Columbus over at this parish. We're going to go to the guy that owns this restaurant. We're going to do what we have to do to get you an apartment, get you a bus pass, get you a car, get you insurance. We don't even know how we're going to do it. We're just going to do it. Yeah, yeah, and they're incredibly resourceful. And I think the thing is, when they're up against these activist groups who have all the time in the world to do media training and protests and stuff that really is not putting foods on tables or diapers on babies or anything like that, they've got plenty of time to go out and do this stuff. So there was a great story of Christina Bennett um, up in Hartford, Connecticut, with I think it was ABC Women's um, Resource Center where the Lady Parts Justice League came out to protest them. The Lady Parts Justice League. How do I join? Lady Parts Justice League. It's this group of mostly uh, Caucasian women, and one of them even had a cape on because she is a savior, right? She's this hero yelling at a pregnancy center from across the street. And they found out about it the night before the Justice League was going to descend on them. And they ended up... Um, going out there or they called they called up a couple of the people who were regulars who had been being served by their center for a while and these women called other women who they knew had visited and been oh, served by this Oh no, well, this is awesome. Yeah. And so you end up with one side of the street that is like 12 white women in capes and ridiculous lady parts justice league type paraphernalia and then on the other side you have 
black women, brown women, Asian women, like all these women in the community that they had been serving this diverse group. And I'm like, don't you parents know that this, this optics wise, this looks really bad. And of course they did, because at the end of the day, they only posted pictures of their group yelling at the other side, whereas Christina posted videos of this is one side, this is our side. And it was kind of a beautiful thing to see. Yeah, that's unbelievable. Well, let's get in late. I, I I put the ball in your court. As I'm watching the movie, I'm sending you all these voice messages. Uh, don't forget, to, <laughs> I got to bring this up. Oh, my gosh, I got to talk about that. Did, is there anything that I messaged you that I said we had to talk about that I forgot to talk about about this really heartbreaking film, Blonde? I think you covered most of them. I think, I think you got all your points. But if you have other points, you should definitely put them in your show notes. Um, I will. I we covered it. It was one of those movies that just kind of leaves your head spinning at the end. So I'm sure that we'll have other thoughts, you know, months from now when it just like comes back and haunts us. Cause it is just, it is a very eerie movie. I don't know that I endorse it, but I don't not endorse it. Like it's super hard to watch, but it also, I think is the story of so many starlets in Hollywood, not even just back then, but even today, except today yeah. they, it's their choice to do these things uh, because they feel so powerless. They know that that's, that's the buy-in for being, you know. Well, we're mammals, right? And, and women get pregnant. Men don't. And they have to suffer that. It's just, and when you have an industry that just, let's be honest, we, no one can deny now the role that sex has played in the making of films in Hollywood. I mean, so much so that when you go to, um, there is uh, that they rebuilt the towers of Babylon. I'm serious in Hollywood, and in the shopping mall. And then there's a serpent that 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 snakes it literally a serpent that snakes its way through the mall to underneath the tower the the gates of Babylon for real. This is not hyperbole or exaggeration. And on the skin of the snake, it has different people saying how they made it in Hollywood, and, but it won't say who they are. It'll just say actor, writer, producer. But then the snake winds around underneath the gates of Babylon looking towards the Hollywood sign. And instead of having a head, the snake has a casting couch. In other words, saying, yeah, 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 this is how you made it. So when you have an industry that that is, you know, uh, not unheard of, maybe common, pregnancies happen. And obviously, if you're wanting a role in a film and you're pregnant, that pregnancy cannot continue. And it's, and it's quite tragic. And so I think the film is very true, whether it's true about Marilyn Monroe, maybe I'll say about this film, what I said about the movie, Noah, the movie, Noah took so many liberties with Noah that I found it quite offensive. And I'm like, they could have called it the flood. There's like a thousand flood stories in the cultures of the world and Christians wouldn't have had a problem. And maybe they, you know, but no one would have watched it if it was just about some random starlet. So is it is everything true about Marilyn Monroe? No. Um, but is it a true story? Is it a true myth about the experience of uh, actors in Hollywood in the 1920s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and today? Probably pretty close to it. Pretty, pretty close, right? Yeah. I want to say this about you, Destiny. One of the reasons I, I, I love you is... Um, you know, you call me and you're like, I'm in Mexico buying a warehouse or can you call me? Can you go to Mexico with me? Um, you know, we're going to a very dangerous neighborhood meeting with the cartels and we're looking at property for a shelter. And- so you're not using cartels. 
please clarify that. Wait, <laughs> wait, what? We're well, meeting with the cartels. Not meeting with Perhaps the cartels. Doing- well, what are you doing? But you're meeting like where they hover. You have meetings where they hover, where they are controlling things about taking away their business. Is that a better way to say it? How should um, I say it? Like you're going to dangerous places to serve women. You know, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. It's real. It's like you're going to the hardest places in the world to care for women. It's quite beautiful. Well, I think that's something we have in common. So that must be why we're frenemies. Frenemies. One day, you're my friend. I'm, I am not, you, I am your frenemy. You are my friend. You're my frenemy like an older brother that gets on my nerves so much, uh-huh. but also I love you anyway. What do I Whatever. do that gets on your nerves? You speak, actually, you do really good when you do this podcast with your interviews of actually like back and forth, but real life, Jason Jones, for anyone who's not had the <laughs> pleasure and the courage of having to be on the phone with you, you're like a machine gun. And like when Abram, my husband, when he sees that you're calling, <laughs> he's like, ah, oh, bye, see you in two hours. Because he knows that I'm just going to be holding the phone like three inches from my ear, not on speakerphone, while you just barrage me with like bullet machine gun. Yeah, we do, we do like then, shots of tequila. Do you just like walk away from the phone, like do the dishes? Have, you like how I said that? Do the I, dishes. Get your husband a beer I, and then come back to the phone. No, I'm changing a tire and changing my oil. I'm doing all types <laughs> okay. of things. Um, but I know the funny thing is like, I'm always like, okay, I got to wrap this up. Just don't respond to him. Just let him think he won. But then you'll say something that makes me insane. And I'm like, as a matter of fact, and then it's like, all right, another hour. Yeah. <laughs> there we have it. <laughs> our, our, our poor spouses have to deal with this. My wife does the same thing. She goes, I don't know why you guys talk to each other. I really just don't understand what's going on here. But I like when you put me on speakerphone and your wife and I gang up on you. That's one of my favorite things about our interactions. Yeah, well, the world gangs up on me. I'm, I'm, I'm a victim of the world. Everyone picks on <laughs> Jason Jones. It's quite sad. <laughs> well, Destiny, how do people follow you? What's the best way for people to follow you? Uh, I would say for your audience, our Facebook page will be the best. That's where we put most of our serious commentaries and things on stuff our instagram is just ridiculous a hot mess memes bad words that will now the people that tro- listen to me because they hate me and will love you where should they follow you oh definitely our instagram i feel like that's it's like way funnier <laughs> it's um i recently got into drag this week which i called you while i was in drag just to show you to wish one of our board members a happy birthday i had to do a video of it so that's on our instagram were you um, i felt so bad i i answered it on on video call and I was around a bunch of pro-life leaders in DC and then I felt like oh maybe I shouldn't have done that like you didn't mind that like the entire pro-life movement saw you in drag yeah you saved me time then I didn't have to call any of them I'm not sure half of them realized it was me at first I honestly it was pretty good it did I did I did not recognize you at all I just you looked like every other drag queen that was about to go read a story I mean it was a lot of makeup 45 minute like YouTube re- tutorial and my husband was like I am very not attracted to you right now you definitely <laughs> isn't that glad what if he was like I've like- never I've never been more attracted to you in my life <laughs> <laughs> then I guess so long my good skin because I would have to <laughs> 45 <laughs> minutes of makeup every day glue like a glue stick you have to do it on your eyebrows and it's it is I created a prosthetic face it was out of control it was so. unbelievable 
So, okay, and um, so we follow you on your Facebook page. That will be in the show notes. And I know there are a lot of people that listen to my audience, God forbid, that would want to support New Wave Feminist. And so that's just at the website. And they said, yeah, yeah, the website. It's got um, ways to support just New Wave Feminist, but especially our work in Mexico with the shelter that any day now we should be closing on. It's really hard to buy property in Mexico as an American organization, but um, we're getting a trust and we're finalizing it. And we're hoping that by November, December, we're actually able to open um, our stellar shelter. That's what we're calling it. Has a giant Stellamaris um, star on the front entrance. I love it. And it's beautiful. Yeah, it's going to be, you know, dignity and housing and just protecting women and children so that they can, you know, create better lives. Now, now explain to people what goes on at the shelter when you're working at the border. It's in Juarez, Mexico, so um, back right up to El Paso, Texas, uh, kind of over there on the point of Texas. And it's basically a lot of, it will be all women and children and pregnant moms who um, are seeking asylum. So they're fleeing violence, gender-based violence, um, sexual violence. Unfortunately, I mean, sadly, a lot of them have been very, very abused and even some have become pregnant um, because of sexual assault on their journey. Uh, and so, you know, we kind of saw this hole in the pro-life movement because immigration is viewed as like this politically left thing while the pro-life thing is politically right. And so there was this neglect and there was, you know, abortion providers were trying to get access to a lot of these women um, to, you know, sell them on the lie that it'll be easier for you to cross if, you know, you're not pregnant or don't have a child and, and stuff like that. And so we just really felt called to go down there and just love on these women well because, even the ones who are pregnant through sexual assault, they, it is their child. They want to continue their pregnancies, but it makes them incredibly vulnerable to be on the streets of war as um, pregnant. And, you know, they get exploited and trafficked and all these other things. And so us just being able to be there to offer shelter as they wait on their asylum cases um, is just where our hearts are. You know, I don't know if you know this. I think you do. I had a young woman that worked for me for many years as my personal assistant that was conceived in rape when her mom was crossing the border and she died tragically young. Do you, do you know about that? No. Yeah. I'll, I'll tell you more in person. I think you may know her mom. It's, it's very sorrowful, but yeah. Mm. It's so it's, and her mom was just 14 years older than her and they just look like sisters. Wow. And, um, but, uh, yeah, her mom said that was the joy of her life and, and it was quite tragic that she died young, but, uh, that's uh, incredibly sad. Yeah. I, I guess I just, I feel like the narrative here in the States is it's so offensive. And actually it's the most anti-feminist statement when people say, you know, the rapist baby, because now you are giving this predator like even more power. They have already, you know, taken so much from this woman. And now you're saying even that child belongs to him. And it's just so vile and disgusting. And when you actually talk to these women, which they're never centered in that, you know, debate, right? It's always, well, what about in cases of rape? But you're never censoring people who came from being conceived that way or that was their experience and they became pregnant through sexual assault. And we have got to listen to women like they're the ones who should be centered in that and not just use these talking points. Because when you do talk to these women like there, that is that is the way that they view these children. Like maybe this this is a new beginning and this is going to be for me and my child and this is going to be our new life. And um, the communal aspect of it too of these women being able to kind of heal together with people who have that shared experience and uh our board member who has run 
shelters down there for women and children has said, you know, a woman will be going through, you know, really bad postpartum depression and dealing with the trauma and all of this stuff. And other women will get up and, you know, be nursing her child and helping her through it because they've been there too. And so that empathy and just sense of community that is so prevalent in South America, like it's such a beautiful thing. It's something that so many of us can learn from um, here in America. And so I think it's beautiful that, you know, those elements of the culture are, are being brought, you know, into my mind. Like, I wish we had more of that here. And these women and their children, it's just, we're incredibly lucky that we get to walk alongside them during, you know, a point of their life that isn't exactly easy, but it can still be beautiful and it can still be surrounded by, by a lot of love. From, from them to us, from us to them, like it's a completely mutual thing. Half the time, I'm not sure who's helping who. Well, it's beautiful work. And because you are on the political left and you're pro-life, this wonderful work that you're doing does not get nearly enough, um, you know, not enough folks know what you're doing. And I know your work's like mine. It's this, this delicate balance. Like you kind of don't want to tell anyone in the world what you're doing ever. Um, but if we don't tell people what we're doing, we can't do it anymore. So we're always walking this tightrope of how much can we tell, who should we tell, how do we tell, without violating the confidence and dignity of the people we serve. Um, yeah. And then you have the added problem, which I guess I kind of have too, believe it or not, because of you know a lot of the positions I take publicly. And um, it is it is challenging to try to find where you can communicate to folks and find people who share your values. And that's why I love this podcast, because strangely enough, it's the largest, it, this is the largest source of new donors for the work of the Vulnerable People Project. I kind of found that's a way cool. for us to find people um, who, who um, want to do the work that we're doing. And I think they want to do your work. So I'm going to put your website and your Facebook and Instagram. They can, they can, um, they can, they can peek over at your Instagram. And if it's too scary, they, I can, they can run away. They can run away. But yeah, they've been warned. <laughs> they've been warned. All right, Destiny Rosa, Destiny Herndon Rosa. you can tell your husband he can come back in the room now. I'm letting you off the phone. I will talk to you later. Thanks so much for having me on. All right, aloha. I'm going to sell pillows. You can go. Oh, I, did, ah, I never hit the, the mute button time. All right, guys. Blonde, I'm not telling you to watch it. Probably you shouldn't. If you watch it, have the remote control in your hand. Uh. Oh, another film that reminds me of it just struck me is Closer. If you've ever seen the movie Closer, that you just, after the film, you're like, what in the world was that? Like, like precious. For like weeks, you're walking around like a grenade went off in your house. You're just kind of shell-shocked. Um, this film is going to leave you stunned. Um, maybe, like for me, you see parts of your life and story in it, and it's, it, it's to use the liberal word, triggering. It's going to... Uh, reminds you of things you shouldn't have done or you did and you regret sorrowful times in your life. In many ways, it's not just the story of Hollywood. It's our story. It's a very sad story, the story of the breakdown of the family, of fatherlessness, of loneliness, um, the abuse of Hollywood of women in the 50s. And then this writer-director um, felt that he needed to do the exact same thing to convey that. Maybe he could have done it in a way uh, that preserved the dignity of the actress. Um, but regardless, it does generate a lot of empathy. It's powerful. All right. 
Uh, pray for me. Pray for my stepmother. Her name is Sandy. I'm going to visit her. She doesn't have much time left. Um, so I'm about to go to the airport and get on a plane. And I pray that I get to be with her as she leaves. And uh, I, want, I hope that she gets to be with me. I get to be with her. as, And then uh, she gets to be with our Lord. And that's my prayer. So please pray for Sandy. Uh, please pray that... Um, She's at least I, I pray that she can make it until I get there and I can be with her and continue to pray for our work at the vulnerable people project that has been a up and down couple of weeks for us. It was great to see baby Jasor reunited. I'm going to put the EWTN uh, story. I appeared on EWTN news nightly in the show notes and uh, it was very moving and emotional. It was six months of work and it was beautiful. And then a school that we were preparing to secure in Afghanistan um, was attacked by ISIS on Friday, killing at least 22 um, children, mostly girls, and countless wounded. And, and our organization, your organization, VPP, is helping these families to make sure that everyone gets every surgery and all the medical treatment they need, and we will be aggressively working to secure schools. In fact, uh, we're making sure that every girls' school is secured um, I'm going to be relentless in doing that. So they are our sponsors. So go to thegreatcampaign.org. That is the website for the Vulnerable People Project. Also the vulnerablepeopleproject.com, same website. Go to our website. Please give your best donation. Help us secure these schools. Our goal is 100 medical centers for women by May. We called Afghanistan Fall Forward. Afghanistan fell. Um, but we're going to make sure it falls forward. We are wading into a country in collapse a country at war with itself, a country being brutalized by ISIS and other terrorist groups. And we are standing with those communities that fought alongside of us and um, that just want education and peace and freedom. We are working to keep the promise that our country made and that Joe Biden broke. Go to thegreatcampaign.org. Give your best gift. Look at all the work we're doing. You can see our schools. You can see our medical center. You can see our, our water systems that we built. You can see all the food that we're distributing. Uh, please stand with us. Uh, why are we doing Afghanistan? We do a lot of work, you know, to, uh, to run influence campaigns for vulnerable communities. Why have we taken it upon ourselves um, to really be the most prominent organization in the world acting across Afghanistan? Now, how did this happen? Well, simply when everyone else ran away, we ran to it. And we ran to it because we made promises. And uh, so we're staying. And we're not going to go anywhere. So thegreatcampaign.org. Also go to mypillow.com. And uh, as you know, I was the first to say it. I had the FBI special where you buy the robe and you buy at mypillow.com. You buy the slippers. You use the code Jones. So when the FBI pulls you out of your house, uh, you're looking sharp for the neighbor's uh, iPhones. Well, you know, then they went after Mike Lindell. And then the Babylon Bee did a whole parody on how after rating Mike Lindell, uh, they've never had a better night's sleep. So you, too, can never have a better night's sleep. Go to MyPillow.com. Look at all of the great products that are made in America. Support the wonderful Mike Lindell, who supports this show and all the great shows. And uh, get some great products. And MyPillow, when you buy MyPillow, you're not just getting a pillow. You're getting a dopamine hit. You're buying stuff from Mike Lindell is the best. Buying MyPillow products is the best. You're buying an American-made product made by a wonderful human being, a wonderful Christian man, supporting a wonderful company, and getting the best product in the world, the best sheets, the best pillows, 
The best mattress topper, I promise you that mattress topper is the thing. Now, we abuse that mattress topper. That, for us, we play games on it. That's the risk. That's the risk. We lay out there as a family. We're playing risk. We're spilling red wine on it, coffee on it. It doesn't matter. It is the most comfortable thing in the world. And I have a Tempur-Pedic. I think it's more comfortable than Tempur-Pedic. But my wife will not let me put a mattress topper on a Tempur-Pedic. But uh, it's awesome. So just go to MyPillow.com, use the code Jones, and look around. And with that code, deep discounts. Also, if you want to be free, you have to be informed. And you have to read Epic Times. Epic Times is, as Steve Bannon says, the best one sheet in America, the daily one sheet. You read that, you're good to go. You, you, you read the one sheet, you're good to go. And the code is Jason Jones. It's ireadepoch.com. The code is Jason Jones. And you are doing well. All right, guys. I'm hoping to come back. I had a lot of questions. I'm going to say this in the beginning of the show, too. I had a lot of questions about my podcast with John Zmerak on the traditional Latin mass. Stephen Harriet's coming on the show. I got all these emails. Never any more emails on my last podcast. And then Stephen asked me a lot of the same questions about the show. I said, really? It's just John and I talking like we always talk. I guess we went a little deeper. I said, Stephen, you come on and grill me. You push me. So Stephen Harriet is going to do a show where he talks to me about my gripes with parts of the Catholic subculture. So uh, make sure you catch the next show. Hopefully, um, you know, I'll be coming back soon from um, being with my stepmother. And I'm going to have uh, Stephen grill me on what the heck I was complaining about. All right. This was another episode of the Jason Jones Show. This has been the Jason Jones Show, powered by Mudhouse Media. Oh, 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 oh